Now it's interesting as we look at this Olivet Discourse that begins in Matthew 24 and goes through the end of 25, also is found in uh, in uh, Luke 21 and Mark 13. It's interesting that this discourse is not found in the Gospel of John. Now there are many things that are found in the three Gospels that aren't found in John's Gospel. That's why we call them the Synoptic Gospels, because they cover many of the same events. John often passes over many events and refers to them figuratively and in an interesting way. I have a theory I want to bounce off of you. And it's a theory that I haven't fully bought into. But it is that the book of Revelation is John's Olivet Discourse. Just something to keep in mind as you read through the Bible. And that's one reason why I suspended my teaching on the book of Revelation to go back and look at other things, particularly the book of Daniel that I have not completely finished yet. But we've done Daniel 70 weeks. And that prepared us to look at the abomination of desolation in the Olivet Discourse. Now it's interesting, in that discourse, Jesus gives specific signs that call for people to take action. He said, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, let the reader understand. Both Matthew and Mark have that expression. When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, let the reader understand. Luke, however, doesn't have that expression that way, and he doesn't have anything about let the reader understand. He says, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation is near. In other words, when we take all three gospel accounts together, there was a specific sign that the Christians would see that would enable them to do something and get out of Jerusalem before it fell. And that was when Jerusalem was surrounded by armies. Now, I've said this before, but its review is important. And so what happened is the Christians are there inside Jerusalem. And there are many, many people there. And the army of the Roman army under a man named Cestius Gallus, who was headquartered in Syria, had the city surrounded and for then, for some unknown, bizarre reason, Cestius Gallus retreated. And this did two things. One, it enabled the Christian Jews, the Jews who believed in Jesus as their Messiah, to leave the city and go elsewhere to be protected. But the other thing it did was for the unbelieving Jews, it hardened their hearts. It made them think, we'll never be taken. This is God's holy city. We will endure forever. And so two things happened as a result of Cestius Gallus' retreat. Believing Jews escaped. Unbelieving Jews' hearts were very hardened. And the result was somewhere near a million people were killed. And as I mentioned before, in my meager coin collection, and it's a piece of silver, 
I have a silver coin minted by the Romans that was minted from the silver that they took from the Jewish temple. And the reason I know that is it has a woman weeping before a menorah. And it says, Judea weeping in Latin. And so I have a silver coin taken from that. I wish I had a gold coin from that because I would be very wealthy. But I don't. But they took the silver and the gold. And among other things, they financed uh, the building of the Colosseum in Rome as a result of looting all of that. Then the Jewish people went into a period of dark ages or decline. And we looked at that last time because when an empire comes to an end, it's described in what is called apocalyptic literature. That's pulling back the curtain and letting people see what's really going on. The end of a nation, the end of a culture, the end of a civilization is described as stars falling out of the sky, earthquakes, upheavals, and all those things. And we saw that proven conclusively last Lord's Day when we saw these, these descriptions of the fall of Babylon to the Medo-Persian Empire. So now what we have to come to grips with today is that we're in a new part of the Olivet Discourse. We're not at a part where there's action that you can take. But, and I'll tell you the action you can take, which I hope you'll be doing now. That is, go home and get your AR-15. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) No, the action you can take is the action described in the passage we just read. And the action you can take is to be prepared. And Jesus is teaching us to be prepared because there is nothing, absolutely nothing, that you and I can do if we are born-again Christians to miss the second coming of Christ. And there's nothing, absolutely nothing, that you and I can do if we do not believe to escape the terrible terrors that will come on the earth when the Lord comes for His church. So now we switch gears and, and we look here and we see, turning back to page 1539 and verse 36. And if you look just, uh, just before it, In verse 35 of Matthew 24, he says, Heaven and earth will pass away. My words will never pass away. And he says in verse 34, I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. It was 40 years after Jesus said these words that the city of Jerusalem was destroyed and the temple was knocked down flat so that not a stone stood on another one. The wailing wall is simply the foundation stones that Herod the Great put there to reinforce the foundation of the temple. The temple itself ceased to exist in 70 AD and indeed literally fulfilled Jesus' words This generation will certainly not pass away till all these things have happened. And that's true. It happened. And it happened beginning in 66 and going on till 70 AD when the temple was destroyed on the exact same day of the exact same month of the Jewish calendar 
that the temple of Solomon had been destroyed by the Babylonians. That's the ninth day of up. Now notice in verse 36, no one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. And then he mentions two things. Look at verse 37. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. And he simply said, what, is, what are the days of Noah? They're the days that occurred in Texarkana yesterday. And they're the days that occurred in Washington, D.C. Uh, after, uh, after we defeated the British, Lord Con- Cornwallis surrendered. In other words, it's stuff that always goes on. Eating, drinking, this is not about gluttony and drunkenness. Marrying and giving in marriage, this is not about some obscene practices. What is the point here that Jesus is making? People are shocked. They're stunned. Now, I want to say this about the return of the Lord for His church. Christians should not be shocked or stunned. We just don't know when it's going to happen. But the world will be shocked and stunned. Can you imagine the explanations that the media will attempt to give. And there won't be any alternate media sources to consult. They'll try to figure out what in the world has gone on because as soon as the Lord Jesus returns for His church, this world is going to be turned into hell. I don't know how long that is. I don't think that it's an extended period of time. I believe the Lord Jesus raptures this church to take them up to be with him in the air, and then he returns with the church to deal with planet Earth. But the point is that as it was in the days of Noah, nobody understood out there in the world. No one knew something was coming. He had taught his three sons and and their wives and his wife something's coming, and he did the preparation he could do. But the point is they were shocked, the world around him. I can't believe that old goat was right. And then he says, notice again, uh, in in the next sentence there in verse uh, 39, that's how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. And then he says, two men will be in the field. One will be taken, the other left. What is he describing? He's describing ordinary life. Two men working in a field, picking vegetables or perhaps hoeing or perhaps plowing. And they're out there working together totally unexpectedly on the afternoon breaking the Lord's Day of Sunday, September the 11th, 2022, working in their field Sunday afternoon. And one's taken and one's left. And they're shocked. The one who's taken was awaiting the Lord's return. Didn't know when. And the one who is left is the one who wasn't expecting the Lord's return at all. And then he says in verse 41, two women will be grinding with a hand mill. One will be taken and the other left. And then he says in verse 42, he says, therefore keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. And then he gives another illustration. Stealing. Y'all have a problem with stealing in Texarkana? I'm sure you do. Wow. I think about the city my youngest son lives in of Memphis. And the member of their congregation, Second Presbyterian, which is one of our, our, in our, what used to be part of our presbytery. The young lady was taken early in the morning when she was out jogging. 
because it was hot. And they found her on, on uh, Labor Day. And then the very next day, someone took a, a, a semi-automatic weapon and began driving around Memphis just shooting people at random. Wow. Stealing, violence, all those things. And so what I'm getting at is this. Back in the Lord's day, they had thieves then too, but they were, they were much cleverer. What they would do is that at night, they would work and they would dig out, perhaps with a little tool, because houses often were made with mud bricks. They would begin to dig in, you see, and notice what he says, verse 43. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. But you see, he was asleep. What you should be doing in the middle of the night. Can't step all night and be able to stay awake in church. So, anyhow... The thief comes, the thief digs through, the thief gets in there and begins to take things. And that's the picture. Again, it's surprise, it's sudden. Nobody knows when it's happening. You know this, you know that your house is going to get broken into sooner or later. I remember one time when Sandy and I ate lunch after church and we went to a Chinese restaurant and when we got out, it was winter time, so we left our little dog in the car. He was a worthless dog. <laughs> he, was a, he was a rat terrier. And so when we got out of the Chinese restaurant, I said to Sandy, I said, Sandy, did you not see all that glass around our car when you pulled in here? And she said, I don't remember any glass here. So I walk up to the passenger side, and someone had broken the passenger's window out. And had gotten Sandy's purse, which she left in the car. And you know what Hamilton, our rat terrier, did? Probably went up and licked the man. <laughs> well, I talked to my insurance agent and he said, we don't cover damage to your car like that. I talked to my son and both my son and the insurance agent said, you ought to get a burglar alarm for your house because I'm fretting. Well, he's got our keys. He's got her driver's license. He knows where, where we live. And what if I change the locks? Well, he comes out there because we live in the middle of nowhere, Louisiana. And, um, and he comes there and the door's locked. He just, he'll just kick the door in. So we've got a burglar alarm. And do you know, on David Major's birthday, my burglar alarm went off at 3.13 in the morning. Someone who had been working on my house had left a door not completely closed. And so when he, I mean not locked. And so what happened is on David's birthday, that alarm went off at 3.13, but I'd stayed up late that night. I was over in Menden and it was a Sunday. It was actually early Monday morning. And I didn't realize anyone had called because I turned my phone off. And uh, so sure enough, so I sent somebody over there. And the man had gone through the, on the back porch, which had been left unlatched, and through an unlocked door. But what happened? What happened within 
One minute of opening that door was a siren went off in the attic and he hightailed it out of there. So listen, you don't know when the thief is coming. I'm glad I have a burglar alarm because we're gone a lot. And that burglar alarm scares burglars. So anyhow, the point is that sooner or later you're going to have trouble. Somebody's going to rob your house. They're going to steal your child's bicycle. They're going to do this. They're going to do that. And Jesus is just taking a story out of everyday life and saying, you know, thieves come. You just don't know when. And now then he comes to the passage we have just read. And that's beginning in verse 45. And he talks about a steward. Now I want you to notice something in this parable. We're now getting another piece of information about the return of the Lord. It's unexpected. How shocked is that servant if he's wicked? Verse uh, 48, but suppose that servant is wicked and says to himself, my master's staying away a long time, and he then begins to beat his fellow servants to eat and drink with the drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and in an hour when he's not aware of. I remember a picture of my one grandson. We saw him play a football game uh, this past Thursday night in Baton Rouge, and it's a picture where his mother had opened the pantry, and he had found his way in there. He was just a little fella, and he had found where she had her chocolate. And he had opened it up, and the expression on that little boy's face, <laughs> it was just like that. Shocked, totally shocked, caught, not red-handed, but chocolate-handed with his mama's chocolate. And so the point is, when the Lord returns, a lot of people are going to be shocked. But I want you to notice the second element about the return of Christ. Not only is it unexpected, not only is it not preceded by signs that you can point to and say, for sure, the Lord's going to return right now. There are no signs like that. Just the intensification of what goes on with good and evil in the world. But notice, notice what he says. In verse 48, where he says to himself, My master is staying away a long time. My master is staying away a long time. Look over in chapter 25 for a moment. You see this same thing. You have the parable of the ten virgins. And um, they're waiting for the bridegroom. And five of them carried extra oil, and five of them didn't. All of them get sleepy. All of them fall asleep. And they, anyhow, what we read here in verse 5, Matthew 25, 5, the bridegroom was a long time in coming. Notice how that's repeated. A long time in coming. So not only is the return of Christ for his church utterly unexpected, but there is a strong hint at delay, a strong hint of delay. And so what happens is the five wives virgins have carried extra oil, the five foolish have not, and so there's not enough. And we read in verse 10, while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Now look at verse 11. 
Later the others also came. Sir, sir, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, I tell you the truth, I don't know you. Wow. Therefore keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. And then notice down the next parable, the parable of the talents in verse 14. And, and we see there Matthew twenty five fourteen. Again, it'll be like a man going on a journey. And he gives these things. And uh, so as we read on in verse 19, after a long time. You know, in Peter's day, there were those who said, this, this is nonsense about the return of Christ. For since the fathers have fallen asleep, all things have continued as they've been since the beginning of creation. But they're conveniently ignorant of certain things. The first thing they're ignorant of is there was a flood that once destroyed the entire earth. They deliberately ignore that. Do you know that our geological columns give us overwhelming evidence? Not of a steady state in terms of Lyle's geologic columns going on for hundreds of thousands and millions of years. But if you study places like the Grand Canyon, you see that these layers sometimes are turned upside down. You see evidence of a universal flood if you analyze carefully what's going on. But you know, people have a... I don't see it. Because if you want to rule God out of science, there's nothing that will ever convince you that he is who he says he is. And he's a God who's judged the world before, universally. Wiped out every man, woman, and child on the face of the earth. And only eight people are preserved, Noah and his family. And so they're conveniently ignorant of that, says Peter. And then he says it escapes their notice that with the Lord... One day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. So even in the time of the apostles who witnessed Christ's resurrection and ascension to the right hand of God, even in their day, before they had died, there were those who said, this is all nonsense. It's, if, it, if it's happened, it's already happened, and there's nothing left to happen. But you see, again, it's this long journey, and, and we see there. And so uh, then as we, as we put these things together, I want to go back and focus on the passage that we read. And that is in Matthew 24, verse 45. And so what happens? We don't know when it's going to happen. It could be this afternoon about 4 o'clock when you wake up from a nap. It could be tomorrow morning when you go out to pick some of those fine vegetables. It could be next Thursday. Wow. But it might not be for another century. And when Jesus said not even he knew, and we looked at that several weeks ago in his human nature, not even he knew. How is it that people set dates and set dates very precisely? There, there was a fellow who put, wrote a book that Christ was going to return on such and such a date. And it was nonsense. And of course, when it didn't happen, he had made some money off books. Do you know that major cults were started with that kind of date setting? There was a Baptist preacher, or actually it was a Baptist layman named William Miller. And he figured by studying the book of Daniel as a layman, he had come up with the exact 
time that Christ was going to return. And he convinced so many people that they're out there waiting. Many people quit their jobs. This was in the 1800s. And after that didn't happen, then they have to revise things. And out of William Miller came two groups of people. The first, which is, does hold to core elements of the gospel, and that's Seventh-day Adventist. And then the other ones that grew out of that are the Jehovah's Witnesses. And it's all based on date setting that didn't happen. Because then when Christ doesn't return, and you've said the date that he's going to return on uh, November the 3rd, uh, during the, uh, is that the day of the election? Anyhow, he's going to return and, and uh, both parties are going to lose because he's coming to take control. Listen, when people get rigid about date setting, they end up starting clubs and cults and groups that follow them. So we don't set dates. But notice here again, he says, he's gone away. Here's this faithful and wise servant whom his masters put in charge of the servants in his household to give them their food at the proper time. Verse 46 of Matthew 24, it'll be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. I tell you the truth, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose that servant is wicked and says to him, my master is staying away a long time. And then he begins to beat his fellow servants to eat and drink with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, an hour when he is not aware of. Now I want you to reflect on this. What can you do to be prepared for the return of the Lord? We're told it right here. What is that? It's to be faithful. It's to be faithful. For me as a preacher, I take this very seriously because I don't want the Lord to return and discover that my ministry was a wasted ministry, that I failed to take God's precious word and feed God's people with that word. This is very important. And as I have observed preachers, particularly preachers who have made a fortune out of being preachers, Oftentimes, they have been very violent men. And I go back to the greatest preacher of the uh, 20th century as a bad example, Jim Jones. Jim Jones discovered a way, probably started out very sincere, but he discovered a way to enrich himself off of poor people. You know, I don't feel so bad for somebody who cons the super rich. But I feel I, I, somebody who cons the poorest of the poor, that's really terrible. Here's what Jim Jones did. He got them to sign their welfare checks and social security checks over to the People's Temple. And of course, the People's Temple there in San Francisco, he pocketed the money. Do you know that the wife of the President of the United States called on him because you learn one thing about politicians. If you want to get elected, you've got to get the preachers behind you. So anyhow, he finally decides, because he begins to start getting too much into conspiracy theories, he decided to buy land on the northern coast of South America in Guyana. And he named his settlement Vincent Town. 
No, Jonestown. He named it after himself. Does that tell you a little about, about his ego? And so I think there's a picture of that kind of man in this wicked servant of verse 49 who began to beat his fellow servants and eat and drink with the drunkards. That's Jim Jones to a T. And over 900 people lost their lives there in those jungles because when he realized the jig was up, when Leo Ryan, who was a U.S. congressman from that district in San Francisco, arrives to investigate because many people had contract, contacted their congressman and said, we're worried about Mama. We're worried about Aunt Susie. We're very worried about Daddy. My son's down there. So Leo Ryan went with reporters, and when he lands, they shot him dead. And then... Then Jim Jones knew it was over. And so what did he do? He mixed up poison in the Kool-Aid. And everybody was forced at gunpoint to drink it. And I just want you, as you read these words, you know, sometimes this has been so literally fulfilled in history. Then in verse 49, he begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and an hour when he is not aware of. Now, I want to make two comments about the return of Christ. In the case of Jim Jones, Christ came for him. But not to welcome him into heaven. Christ came for him. He sent the angels, the angels of death, the Malchamavits, to take this wicked man. And he took him down to hell. I think I mentioned to you one time that Sandy and I actually watched a man go to hell. Never seen anything like it in my life. He had been a wicked, wicked, wicked man. And we would go with him, over to his house and pray for him. And he was in a hospital bed. And he had been very unconscious for the past couple of days. And we're there. And all of a sudden in a hospital bed, his eyes got wide open, big as saucers. And he's trying to climb out of that hospital bed, desperate to get out of the hospital bed with a look of abject terror on his face. So even if the Lord Jesus Christ does not personally return for his people in your lifetime, the Lord Jesus Christ does bring a day of judgment on all people, men and women alike. You know, we mourn the death of Queen Elizabeth. Her life span spans the greatest period of economic prosperity for more people in the entire world than has ever been in history. And it's come to an end and coming to an end. And her death somehow or another seems to span this. She was a wonderful woman. Apparently during Billy Graham's first crusade in London, she asked him to come see her. And he led her to Christ. And her life was an exhibition of Christian living. But I'll say this. When she stood before Jesus, she stood before Jesus the way she's buried in St. Giles Cathedral first. Because in Scotland, where she died... And her first funeral is in St. Giles. The Church of Scotland, she is not the head of the church. She's just an ordinary member like each of you. And that means in the Church of Scotland, she was simply buried, will be in her funeral, 
remembered as a sinner saved by grace through faith in Christ. And that's her only hope, and that's my only hope. So what happens? In verse 51 of Matthew 25, He will then cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites where there be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So how do we prepare for that? We prepare for that by being faithful to do our calling in life. What's your calling in life? Well, perhaps you're called to be a mama. I don't think there's a higher calling on the face of the earth than than raising children. Perhaps you've been called to teach school. That is a very difficult job today. Our grandson came back from teaching Friday night and was so angry at the disrespect that was shown a substitute teacher. He wanted to rant and rave over it, so we sat and listened. That's a tough job today. Perhaps you're called to be a doctor. Perhaps you're called to be a farmer. Or perhaps at this point in life, you've put in your time. But I want to say, don't give up. Don't quit. Pray, pray, pray. Keep on and ask God. Ask God to show you somebody today you can share your faith with. Because you can share your faith in Christ with anybody, anytime. And so, to prepare for the second coming of Christ, there's no point in all the other preparations people do. Keep praying, keep believing, and ask God that as long as you have breath in your body, He would enable you to pray for people and to share your faith with other people. It's amazing how many people have been led to Christ by somebody in a hospital, by somebody in a nursing home. Pray, seek the Lord, and surely... As we remember those terrible events on the morning of September 11th, 2001, our country's in great need. How are we going to change this country? There's not a thing you can do except reach individuals through prayer. But you know what? I got a hotline to Joe Biden because I can pick up this phone right here and I can talk to Jesus about him and Jesus can talk to Joe Biden. He can talk to Kamala Harris. He can talk to to, uh, Chairman Xi. He can talk to Vladimir Putin. He can talk to anybody. Do you know in the middle of the night he can send a dream that will absolutely terrify any of those people. And so pray, dear ones, I tell you this, as we have a prayer meeting tomorrow night, there is nothing, absolutely nothing, more important than Christians praying and praying together and believing God's promises that God wants yet to extend His mercy and grace to this sin-sick world and reach millions who've yet to be reached because we've a story to tell to the nations and we need to be about it. So when the Lord returns, we hear, well done, good and faithful servant. May we pray. Lord, would you bless us this day as we think of the return of Christ, part of the Olivet Discourse, and yet something that has not yet been fulfilled, something that is still in the future. And while you you delay your return, 
may we regard the Lord's delay as salvation. Lord, that you are not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance and faith. Grant it be so, Lord, for Jesus' sake. Amen.